0: Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Today I'm joined by Tracy Osborne and we answer listener questions on two-sided marketplaces, mastermind hot seats, forgotten subscriptions, and more questions from listeners like yourself. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 479. Welcome to Startups to the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup, or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Tracy Osborne, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome back to the show. Each week on the show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups. We're ambitious founders, but we're not willing to sacrifice our life or our health to grow our company. And this week, we dig into the mailbag. We answer four or five listener questions. Some good questions came through this week. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tracy Osborne, who's been on the show several times. She's answered listener questions with me. She's also was the founder of Wedding Lovely, which was a two-sided wedding marketplace. And I had interviewed her maybe 20 episodes ago. If you want to go back and check that out for her expertise. I always like to save the two-sided marketplace questions for her since she lived lived that dream, so to speak, for four or five years. We have several different show formats. Oftentimes, I will interview a founder and dig into their struggles and their failures and their victories. We have these listener question episodes. Sometimes we have breaking news. We get updates from a founder, Mike Tabor, every four to six weeks. And, of course, we have our hot seats now and again. The 2020 State of Independent SaaS Report almost done putting the finishing touches on that I commented last episode how how much time that's taken I'm super proud of what we put together I'm stoked every revision I get back from the designers gets me more excited so I'm doing a live video stream of some key takeaways of that report in about two weeks if you want to be sure to hear about that head to state of indie sas indie sas.com and that'll redirect you into a microconf to a landing page enter your email and you'll definitely get an email when that live stream is going to go live it's going to be about 20 to 30 minutes and I'm, I'm doing it kind of like a, a conference talk where I'm really presenting findings and what I think they mean and there's been some surprises that we've seen in the data and then some not so surprises so it's kind of fun to cover both sides of those so I hope you join me for that in just a couple weeks. And with that, let's dive into this episode. Tracy, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: I am excited to dig into some listener questions today. And specifically, I handpicked the first two because they're about two-sided marketplaces. And as people heard in the intro, you ran one for several years. So I always like saving
1: those for when you're back on the show. Very cool. I'm really excited to answer those.
0: So let's dive into the first one. Unfortunately, it was a voicemail that we received several months ago. And due to some technical glitches, I can no longer get at the audio file. But in essence, the the caller sent a voicemail in and he said, look, I'm starting a two-sided marketplace. Obviously, we need both sides, you know, to be successful. And only the businesses pay. So it's a business on one side and consumers on the other. And the businesses, I believe, paid a subscription. Which side should they focus their marketing budget on?
1: This is a fun one. I mean, it's Kind of goes to the problem of marketplaces, where the beginning part, the start of a marketplace, is really hard because you need to get both sides of the marketplace. Um, You need to get for Wedding Lovely, the marketplace I ran before. I need to get both the businesses on Wedding Lovely, but also the consumers for those businesses, so that they would have customers through my marketplace. What I did at Wedding Lovely, and this is probably what I would recommend to anyone who is running a marketplace, is to focus, you know, on bringing in as much revenue as possible, especially if you're doing a bootstrap business, which means that you need to focus your marketing budget on the business side. But obviously, you need to have some way of bringing in, in the other side of the marketplace. So what I recommend here is to look for ways that you can use the side that's you're spending your mar- marketing budget on, for instance, the businesses. What can you do to incentivize them to bring in the other side of the marketplace? For example, with Wedding Lovely, I worked with the businesses on Wedding Lovely, the wedding businesses, to give them tools to bring in the people that they've worked with, to bring them onto the platform and encourage them to use Wedding Lovely on the other side. So my marketing budget was going to those businesses, but it was in essence trickling down to the other side by utilizing those those businesses to bring in the people that they're working with. In essence, I would recommend to spend your marketing budget on the people who are bringing you revenue, but do your best to make incentivize the people that you're working with that are, um, you're spending those revenue dollars on bringing in the customers that they work with, bringing in the other side of the marketplace so that you're more efficient with the money that you're spending on the marketing budget, but you're still bringing in both sides of that marketplace.
0: Yeah, I think that's a savvy way to do it. The way I think about this is oftentimes businesses marketing to other businesses need to spend a lot of money. Like you need to have higher quality content, you need to spend ads and nurture and convince them why they should pay. There's, there's a huge job I and mean, that's just the job of any standard SaaS app. On the flip side, businesses market to consumers frequently do it with virality, they do it with content, they do it with Instagram posts, giveaways. There's things that you can do that are that are just much, they're just so different, you know, they're, they're so different in terms of the approaches. And I think it's not that you can do it more inexpensively with consumers, but I do think that, you know, given that we see people selling B2C kind of eBooks for 10 bucks or 20 or 30 bucks, there's obviously ways to acquire customers that are a lot cheaper than there are to acquire that next big, that big SaaS customer where you're paying a hundred or 500 or a thousand dollars to close that account versus, hey, I'm going to acquire someone for $10, 20 $30. It's just, it's such a different game. So in that sense, I, I agree with you in that I would put marketing budget towards the folks who are going to be paying you. And then I think there are guerrilla, scrappy, you know, bootstrappery ways to to go after the consumer side of it. And one of them is what you said, it's to get the businesses to bring their critical mass to you. I think that's a great way to do it. And there's obviously, you know, there's, there's models for, for B2C marketing um, that we won't go into here, but that's, that's what I would focus on is the cheaper and expensive ways to get consumers to, uh, to join up.
1: So the next question comes in from Anthony. He says, hi, I listened to a bunch of episodes, so I apologize if this was covered. I heard a couple of episodes on marketplaces and how to get them going from a cold start, but I don't think you've touched on the come for the tool, stay for the network strategy where you build a SaaS tool for one or both sides of the marketplace that is useful regardless of the existence of the marketplace. Um, He also brings in a a link to a Stripe article that kind of covers a little bit, which which is a really cool link, and I'm pretty sure you're going to add it to the show notes. So what do you think?
0: I I think it's a great idea. And in fact, if I personally were to go after a two-sided marketplace, which I tell people not to do, don't do it. If you're listening to this, don't do it. It's just so hard, you know, unless you have funding or unless you're a second-time founder or unless you really have a unique insider, or a unique reach, or you already have an audience that essentially makes it more of a one-sided marketplace. Uh, you know, if you look at how Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood started Stack Overflow, that's very much a two-sided marketplace. You need, well, you need people a- asking questions and answering them, although the audiences are, it, it's one side, but it's, it's both one side and two-sided, right? Because it's the same audience, but they're doing two things. But they didn't just go start that from scratch. I mean, community sites, two-sided marketplace is very hard to, to start, they brought their massive blog audiences to it, right? So if you have that type of unique reach into a space, I would say, hey, you know, consider doing this. But all that said, if I were going to do it, start a two-sided marketplace, I would either do it in a, in a space where I have reach, you know, if you think about tiny seed, it's kind of a two-sided marketplace, right? Because you need to bring investors in and, and get them to put money into a fund. And then you need to have enough reach into the founder space that folks will come to you. You essentially have deals saying, Hey, if you know, we want to be funded by you and that it's, it's a tough thing to manage from a cold stop. So I would do it in a space where I have reach, or I would do it with a tool like this, because having that utility, having a SaaS app that these businesses need, that you either you know give away just to draw them, or that you give at a at an inexpensive price point in order to get the the network effect going, I, I think is a, a really interesting way to do it. In addition, if we look at Sean Ellis did this in reverse because he essentially started growthhackers.com and he used his reputation as as a marketing you know expert, and he had a, a bit of an audience, and he got a network effect and built it up. And it's like a social news site for, you know, for growth hackers in essence. But then he built software on top of that. And actually, I believe later just pivoted, totally pivoted into the SaaS aspect of it. So it's it's an interesting reverse model of, of what the question asker was asking. But I do think there are many ways to, to go about this.
1: Yeah, the one thing I would caution, the article on Stripe talks about HipCamp and how HipCamp uh, now allows you to book private campsites. And I, I have, I'm not totally familiar with hip, with hip camp, but it sounds, it's a two-sided marketplace for private campgrounds, but it started out as a tool for people to find uh, what campgrounds are out there, what's available. And they sounded like they scraped a bunch of publicly available lists in, in order to, take all this data into one place. So the two-sided marketplace didn't exist in the beginning. And when you're talking about adding a tool in order to launch your two-sided marketplace, I feel like one needs to come after another. They can't really do them concurrently because then you're kind of splitting your focus between two separate products, two different things that you have to work about. And one kind of leads into the other. And that was one of the problems I had with Wedding Lovely where I there was a wedding wedding marketplace but I launched a tool for people to plan their wedding and then all of a sudden I was a solo founder with two products that I was working on, two products to support, and it became really hard to do both. Like a marketplace is hard on its own. Supporting a tool and a marketplace can be tougher, especially if your tool is pretty significant. So that's just one thing I wanted to bring up to kind of caution against. Um, It could be a good way. I agree that marketplaces are really, really hard. It's part of the reason why Wedding Lovely didn't succeed, especially since I was a semi-bootstrapped founder, trying to run everything myself. But adding a tool on my own plate did not help the situation, actually. It probably significantly hurt it.
0: Yeah, it's like doing it on hard mode.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Right? It's like, let's start a SaaS app and have all this other stuff, the two-sided marketplace stuff to worry about. Like it's not hard enough just starting and marketing a SaaS app. Yeah. With that said, I still uh, that's what I would do. But I'm a but I'm a SaaS person, right? That's what would draw me to a two-sided marketplace is the appeal of being able to build a product. So I think uh, it's kind of there is a little bit of personal preference in there just uh, it's like know what you're getting into, you know? I think that's really the the moral.
1: Yeah, actually now you mentioned this. Like the the building the app was a lot of it was Me just being frustrated about running the marketplace and needing something else to focus on, which, you know, kind of leads into some of the other issues I had running this business, but it was a fun, different project to work on that would also help my business. So I agree on that aspect. So next question comes in from Simon. Simon writes, Hey Rob, I received the tiny seed update. I went through the list of podcasts because I was curious about one thing. What is the type of mastermind you're running with a hot seat implementation? I heard a bit about it on Peter Soom slash Matt Wensing's episode in Croatia, uh, which is out of beta, but it left me curious. Maybe you have some more info for me. Thanks and keep rocking. So I find this question actually really interesting because when I started at Tiny Seed, I myself wasn't... Totally aware about hot seats and masterminds and these are things. I never participated in a mastermind myself. Um, and I one of the things we're doing a tiny seed for the next incoming batch is I wrote a little bit of a guide. Cause I thought when I didn't know what hot seats were, I'm like, oh, but of course everyone else knows and kind of just rolled with it. Um, but then we did find that a few of the founders were also unaware about how they work. And so I wrote up this little guide. So maybe you can go ahead and um, give an overview. But I just want to say that, that I feel like this is a, it's not obvious and not completely common that everyone knows how hot seats work.
0: Totally. Yeah. It's it's that shorthand, right? Where we get and we talk MRR and LTV. And the first time you listen to this podcast, you're like, what, what is all, what are all these acronyms mean?" And I think masterminds and hot seats and founder retreats and all that stuff is the same. So mastermind is really just a phrase that we've kind of adopted from internet marketers, to be honest. And it has Almost in, in that context, there are people that would start these, you know, it's like five grand a month mastermind and you work with the internet marketer and he's going to help you grow this big business. And I I think they have kind of a reputation that I'm not, I don't love, but it really does in the startup space, it really does capture this idea of, hey, it's two, three, four founders uh, getting together on a regular basis, whether, you know, via Zoom or other video chat or whether it's in person and really going deep on their businesses and, and having that, that kind of implied NDA confidentiality and sharing, they're just all the, the struggles, right? Sharing the struggles, this is especially helpful if you don't have a co-founder, that someone's along on the journey that is not your spouse, not your significant other, that you can complain to, that you can rant about that you can celebrate wins with who's there on the journey. So you don't have to call someone and say, Hey, so I'm running this company. And here's the background for the past 12 months of what I've been doing. And here's my headspace. It's so hard to do that. In the mastermind context, whether it's weekly, biweekly, monthly, people know what's going on. And they're following your story in a way that you can't share on a podcast, you know, because you, you need ultra transparency and that and that kind of stuff. So that's in general, how i think about a startup mastermind. And we actually did a whole episode on what they are. I mean, go to uh, com, search for startup mastermind. And Mike and I went through that a few years ago. Then within a mastermind, it's like, well, so what do you do? So you're on a call for an hour or 90 minutes. What do you actually do? Well, and there's kind of two formats that I've seen. One is just pure round robin. So if there are three people and you're on it for 45 minutes, then each person gets 15 minutes. And then the other format that I've experienced with and been familiar with is a hot seat format. And that's where if there are three people, 45 minutes, like two of the founders, maybe give a five minute updates. This is what's going on. And then the other founder takes the other 35 minutes and goes way deep on a single issue or a single problem they're facing. And they ask for advice and thoughts and it's a whiteboard session and they're thinking it through and how can you help? And you know, it's it's all the stuff. So the hot seat really just means I have a lot of time to dig into something. And, you know, you can talk about how we've implemented that with the tiny seed batch calls because it's evolved a, a little bit over time, but both formats have essentially, there's different value from each format, right?
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's nice to hear What we do with the tiny seat call formats, and we've gotten a lot of questions about that actually in the applications is how we we run our calls. And it's like 50%, maybe 70% hot seat format, and then um, 30% kind of like the, the round robin everyone gets a chance to talk. The way I look at it with the round robin is it that... I want to say that people are going to get their problems solved, but really it's harder in the round-robin format because everyone's kind of concentrating on their own issues. And for us, it's a way for us to give people a place to kind of talk out loud, to kind of think about their own issues. Because there's like less feedback that people are giving when you have a short amount of time and everyone is participating. You have less time for people to give feedback. But with the, the hot seats, that's when it's really like, okay, cool. We're going to sit down. We're actually going to solve a problem. And that's not, that doesn't mean you can't have that problem-solving part on those, those round-robin formats. But it's a lot harder when you're, get, you're telling everybody you have an even small period of time in order to share your problem as compared to being like, okay, cool. We're really going to think over this one thing. So that's kind of th- one of the things that I think about a lot with the, the tiny seat calls and kind of like how they work. Again, I want to emphasize that I totally want people to be able to have their problem solved more on the, the round-robin format, but just a shorter amount of time makes it a little bit harder.
0: So I hope that was helpful. That's kind of our our rundown. And again, we actually have two episodes where we've spent the whole episode talking about it. So Episode 167 from 2014, how to organize and run a startup mastermind. And episode 277, five ways to structure your startup mastermind. And I believe that's when Mike and I kind of went back and forth because I like round robin and he, in general for like the weekly or the, the monthly masterminds that I'm in. And he likes the hot seat, I believe. And we were kind of going back and forth. And I've since kind of changed my opinions on that as well. But uh, if you want more about masterminds, head to those episodes.
1: Awesome. Next question comes from Mike and he asks, has there ever been any public numbers on how much a SaaS's monthly revenue comes from forgotten subscriptions or lost users? Those users who are paying, but never use the service slash content. As an owner, do you think there's any moral responsibility for us to stop charging these people at a certain point?
0: Good question, Mike. So I've never heard of public data. I know that I've seen private data across a number of SaaS apps, and it, it really depends on the niche. I mean, in all honesty, if you are doing high pressure sales tactics to kind of the the internet marketee, you know, aspiring entrepreneur audience, and you're selling annual plans, these numbers are 50, 60% of people who have paid for that year maybe even 70 and never use it much like the ebooks people buy that they never never read the video courses people buy that that they they want to get to and never do i think a normal range should be somewhere between it's hard to say, but it depends on exactly how you measure inactivity, right? But I'd say between about 15 and 25%, I think is a kind of a healthy SaaS app range, which sounds really high. But oftentimes, I mean, even right now, I'm paying for a couple SaaS subscriptions, and we're technically inactive. I believe I have three right now that one, I'm leaving for kind of data purposes until we totally transition to a new system. Another one, I signed up, the trial ended, I'm just extending my trial. So I'm like two months in of paying and I haven't yet he flipped the switch on moving something live. So with those, I don't feel like I wouldn't want someone to to kind of the owner of the SaaS company to come to me and kind of say, hey, I want to shut these down because I'm leaving them on purpose. Obviously, if someone forgets about it, I think, I, I don't know, moral responsibility. I mean, I guess you could ping people. I It's more about moral responsibility to get people activated, I think is how I think about it. Like If, if people aren't using my app, I mean, I, I build apps to provide value to people. And if they're not getting that value out of it, then... I feel like I'm failing them in the sense that that I didn't educate them well enough to, to learn how to use it. They don't know what to do next. Yeah, that, that's how I think about it. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what you think about it, uh, Tracy.
1: Yeah, I think this comes from, I can't remember who, um, but I feel like there has been a few services out there that have gone public being to say, they're like, hey, we noticed that, you know, we had a certain amount of our customers who aren't Aren't using our app, and we're going to do the right thing and, and make sure they're not being charged or they're, they've been removed or whatnot. And they're they're promoting it as a, like, look how how again moral that we are we are being. And I think that works if you wanted to go that way. Then sure, but I feel like if you're a large company, you have the privilege, I guess I want to say, to a remove that revenue and not have to worry about that. Um, and B also you have, they have the analytics and the things in place so they can see who is actively using the app. They have the time to dig into those numbers. They have the time to spend the time to remove those people. And I want to tell anyone who is a small business, who's bootstrapped or whatnot, that doesn't have a lot of time has to, you know, be really efficient with their time. I, I want to say like, Hey, cool. That's a, that's a great moral thing to do, but I don't think a lot of small businesses have the time to Do that, if that makes sense. Like, and I want to say that it's totally fine if you don't feel like you have the time to spend the time working on those kind of things that are, is going to lose you revenue when you could be spending the time, like you said, improving your app, improving your activation numbers, improving, you know, spending your marketing dollars and working on, on getting the word out and all that kind of stuff. So I just want to like reassure that there's, there's no problem with not having the time to do this kind of this moral revenue losing thing um, as a small app, because there's other people out there who even though there's other people out there who have that ability.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point you raised is just to even look into it it takes time. And time is like the most valuable asset of a founder, especially when you're one person or there's a three person team. It's less about, I mean, the revenue is is an issue as well. Like, you know, what if you went out and sought everyone out and you emailed them and you double checked, hey, I'm going to cancel your account so that, do you want to cancel? Are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, just that, that is a campaign onto its, on its own. And then it's like, you're going to do that and then you're going to lose 15 or 20% of your, of your MRR. Yeah. I think Think about if, if that's something you want to do, then, then go do it. I don't, you know, I don't know anyone that's, that's done it. You mentioned, you know, examples of, of folks that did. And I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I do also think that there's, it's, it's interesting just to look across the landscape of like, the way we used to buy software is pay this one-time fee. And then you had to buy it when the next major version came out. But until then, you know, you bought Microsoft Word and then you had it for three, four years. And it didn't matter if you used it or not. You paid that fee up front you know, 100, 200 bucks. I mean, Microsoft Office was so cost prohibitive that, you know, they have student versions and they were giving it away in India and Africa and stuff because it is expensive. And whether you paid for it and used it five times or whether you paid for it and used it solid for three years, you paid the same amount. And so we've transitioned to subscription things. And I think that's way better for the consumer, right? I think because now we can cancel. And if you're not using it, I mean, that's why SaaS is so hard to grow is because when people aren't using it, you haven't got that big chunk of money up front but in my opinion, it's like, if you make it easy for people to cancel and like with every app I've ever had, we email a monthly receipt every month. You get an email that you've been charged this much and this is your bill date and and this and that. So you're, you're getting notified, you know? I mean, I, I, I'd imagine there are some apps out there that don't do that and they kind of try to hide behind it or they try to, they hope you forget and never check your credit card statement. It's like, don't do that. Like that's, I don't, I don't think that's ethical, but I think if, if you're, Pinging people, and we used to get, you know, when email receipts go out, you get a response, and it's like, "Hey, I meant to cancel this. Can I get a refund?" Which we would do, and you know, "Hey, I," we would definitely get cancellations from receipts. So, if we were optimizing for not cancellation for non cancellation, we would have removed our email receipts. We would have removed the cancellation button in the app and made you email support or, heaven forbid, call support like um, Comcast or whoever does. You know, that's the way to kind of game things, and that's where I think you get on the the immoral or the unethical approach. But I think what I've outlined, which is like, you're notifying them. They're well aware you're doing it. You're trying to get people onboarded. I feel like you're, you're doing what you can, you know, you can't force someone to use your app.
1: Yeah, totally. The next question comes from Proco. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He writes, firstly, thank you so much for all the great work and resources you offer. Do you know of any podcast similar to yours that specializes or also covers B2C stuff?
0: Shorter answer is No. The long answer is the reason is because there is no there's no really no such thing as B2C SaaS, right? I think Lars Lofgren said this on an early mentor call, but I've thought this for years. What company can you think of that is not an entertainment company, right? Netflix and and Spotify, I wouldn't consider SaaS, they're more content delivery. Even Dropbox which started as a consumer company, look at their public filings now. There's a reason they went after enterprise. Like they are an enterprise company, the consumer side is legion. You know, it's just so we all are comfortable using their software so that when you go to the company and they want to sell to a 10,000% enterprise, everybody's already familiar with it. It's the same reason Apple Computer gave away an Apple IIe. This is back in, let's say, 1980, 80, 81. An Apple IIe, they gave to every public school in California. And they did it so that kids could learn computers, but also they were familiar with the Apple operating system in essence. And when they went home, if their parents said, well, what kind of computer we should get, a kid would say, well, I bought an Apple IIe. They're familiar with it. So I'm totally open for, if you're listening to this and you know of a B2C software, I think is basically what he's saying, a a podcast that focuses on B2C software. Please write in questions at startupswitharestofus.com or post a comment on this episode. Do you know of any Tracy?
1: I'm glad that you didn't because I didn't as well. <laughs> I was racking my brain and hoping that you had a a good one to respond with. But yeah, I agree with you on all those points.
0: I mean, I, I'm sure there's a, you know, someone building mobile apps out there who's doing a podcast or the B2C side tends to be training courses, information. Sometimes it's dietary stuff like I, I need a paleo meal planning app or um, you know, meditation kind of wellness. I mean, I, I think that's the kind of stuff that, that focused on and I, and I don't know of any podcasts that, that focus on that. Aside from one-off, like if you listen to This Week in Startups, Jason Calacanis interviews founders and you'll see B2C founders come through there. That might be the one place that, that I'd go if I, were, if I were looking for this.
1: I think that's all the questions we have.
0: We're wrapped up for the day. That's great. Short episode. Folks want to find you online, tracymakes.com or at tracymakes on Twitter.
1: I'm about to correct you, it's tracyosborn.com.
0: Oh, good. I'm glad you corrected me. <laughs> I'm confused when the domain doesn't match the Twitter handle.
1: If I could get Tracy Osborne on Twitter, I would. Alas, there is another person.
0: There is another Tracy Osborne. Yeah, I went out and bought robwalling.com like two years ago from a different Rob Walling. And one of the big reasons is I just wanted all my handles to match. And I got tired of saying like, no one could remember what my my website was rob.com because back in 2005, that was what you did. You didn't just put your name.com. I don't know why, but um, it just wasn't a common thing to do. And now it makes more, so much more sense. So thanks again to Tracy for joining me on the show today. We answered a lot of listener questions. And if you have a question that you'd like to hear answered on the show, whether by me or myself with a guest, leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690. Or you can always email us. It's questions at us.com. You can attach a, a Dropbox link or what have you. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us by searching for startups in any podcatcher and visit startupswitharestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.